Welcome to another episode of A People's Theology. I'm the host of A People's Theology, Mason Menega. In this episode, I talk with John Dominic Crossan. John Dominic Crossan is one of the most prominent and influential New Testament scholars and historians of early Christianity. You can get connected with John Dominic Crossan and his work in the links in the episode description. If you're a fan of A People's Theology, it would bring me no greater joy than if you gave the podcast a five-star rating and review. Tell me what you like about the podcast. Also, if you feel so inclined, please support my Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Mason Meninga. There are multiple tiers with wonderful rewards, including papers I write to even a book club. Enough of my rambling. Enjoy more inspiring and liberating theology. Today, I am joined by the incredible, this is like a, a kind of a dream come true, Dom, I just got to say, but today I am joined by John Dominic Crossan, and Dom, you are a, a New Testament scholar, you're a, a scholar of early Christianity, and we're going to talk all about that today, uh, but uh, before we dive into all the fun resurrection things that we want to talk about, who is John Dominic Crossan to John Dominic Crossan? Okay, well, let me explain why I have that triple name. I mean, a lot of people, couldn't you just have John D. Crossan or something? Why do you need three <laughs> names? The story is very simple. My, I was born in Ireland, as you can tell from my accent. My name was John Crossan. I was in Donegal, so it was Sean O'Crossan in Gaelic. But anyway, John Crossan. That's still what's on my passport, my driver's license, you know, TSA and all of that. But at the age of 16, since I was a little bored with life in Donegal, I decided to join a Roman Catholic religious monastery. I thought that was the most interesting thing I could do at 16. Twas, you know, I can think of a lot of other cool things to do at 16 uh, well, besides of, join a monastery. A lot of other people did that. But, you know, looking back on it, I wouldn't change a single fraction of that. But in any case, <laughs> when you go to a monastery, they wipe out your past kind of symbolically. So out went John Cross and then came Brother Dominic. They made up that name. Like in the Bible, you know, you got a change of name when you got a change of vocation. It means you're a different guy. That's what's going on. So they put Dominic in. Um, 19 years later, I finally decided that celibacy was vastly overrated. You know, so I'm out of here. <laughs> I'm leaving the monastery and the priesthood, by the way. But I really liked all sorts of stuff I got in there. You know, my got my doctorates and all sorts of other interesting stuff. Really cool. So I'm taking that all with me. So I, I stuck Dominic in the middle. It has no legal standing. So the joke is sort of the government knows me as John and God knows me as Dominic. And <laughs> most of the times they're not on speaking terms. So there, there's no confusion, you know. <laughs> anyone who knows me, Mason knows me as Dominic or Dom. So that's who I am, basically. I, I love it. I love it. You know, I've always thought, you know, I think I would be a really good monk other than the celibacy. So I, I'm kind of with you on that. Well, I love the study. I mean, you know, I went in at 16. Okay, we're talking about 1950 in Ireland. Do you have any idea how asexual a 16 year old pretty much was in Ireland in 1950? <laughs> I don't, you know, to be realistic. Um, so 
I went in there and they decided when I went in, hey, you've got five years of Greek and five years of Latin at high school. You ain't like the other American kids we got here. You're going to be a professor. Okay, you're the boss, whatever. I went into the monastery, you like going to the army, do what you're told. It's okay, you want me to drive a tank or whatever. So I became a professor. Now, they did that. They sent me back for my doctorate. They sent me to Rome for two years. They sent me to Jerusalem for two more years. So I had a fabulous study time, not like you get in Harvard, because I was all over Europe in the late 50s, all over the Middle East, when you could really get to Iran, Iraq, and all that funny places in the 60s. So I had a fabulous education. And I loved it. I loved study. I really did. And the big thing for me was when I left the monastery, the priesthood, hold on to being a professor. Leave the priesthood, leave the monastery, leave celibacy. But I really wanted to do that. So I went to DePaul University and remained there happily for my whole professional career. Yeah, and you definitely ruffled some feathers during those uh, those years. And uh, it's part of the reason why I really like your work. I, I love anybody who ruffles some feathers. <laughs> well, you know, the honest thing, Mason, was I didn't set out to rustle feathers. Maybe that education in Ireland was so different, you know, because I was reading Virgil and Homer and, and that fun stuff forever found out there was a New Testament. You know, I knew all about Roman imperial theology before I ever read Paul. So that gave me a totally different slant. It, it had nothing to do with being so smart. I saw things differently. I, I just came up on a different education. I, I, I couldn't not see things differently. Right. So that's what happened. So I did ruffle feathers, but that wasn't my purpose. I love it. Well, let's talk about uh, some of the work that you've done. Uh, you're actually currently doing this lecture series with uh, Trip Fuller, who's a good friend of the podcast. Uh, you're doing a homebrewed Christianity thing, uh, and it's called the Easter Stories. And so you're you're going through all of these different lectures about Easter and the resurrection. And so I got to uh, listen into those lectures. It's unbelievable. And then you've been doing some live stuff with Trip uh, over the last few weeks as well. And so for everyone who might be interested to go in more depth about what we're, we're just going to do kind of an introductory thing. But if people are interested in going more in depth about what Dom is going to be talking about today, they can go over to Homebrew Christianity, sign up for that course, and uh, listen into those lectures and, and check out some of the live stuff that you've been doing with Trip. So uh, is there anything else? I, I'm sure I'm missing some things. Is there anything else you want to mention around what you've been no, doing with Trip? No, what we did was an experiment. We put all four lectures up right at the beginning of Lent. And then we're doing, you know, five Q&As separately. So they can, they can read the whole thing, as it were, first before they even bother going to a Q&A. It's an experiment and a different way of doing it. Love it. Love it. Well, let's, uh, let's talk about Easter. So you have uh, in the Four Visions lecture series, you talk first about resurrection as a metaphor uh, and, and specifically how ancient people would have understood resurrection as a metaphor, uh, especially during Jesus's time. So can you talk about how did ancient people, especially during Jesus's time, understand res the concept of resurrection? Because a lot of people today, a lot of Christians today would not realize that Ancient people thought about resurrection very differently than a lot of Christians do today. So, yeah, can you talk yeah. a little bit of how they understood it during Jesus's time? And that's the way you go at it as a scholar. You ask, what did the word mean? You know, I'm Irish. And if, if for example, we, we call our parliament the Dáil, D-A-I-L, you can't say, that's stupid. Why don't you just call it the parliament? Well, that's what we do. <laughs> so what did people mean when they used terms like resurrection? And I compared it with another term. Now, let me back off a bit. You use the term metaphor. 
And that halts most people. They say, you mean it's just a metaphor? Metaphor creates reality. Mm. Metaphor is the way you see. It's, it's, if I could hyphenate it, it's seeing as. We kind of know that with small metaphors, like um, you know, the clouds sail across the sky. We all know that. Nobody'd say they don't really sail. But yeah, this, we're seeing the sky like the sea because it's blue and the clouds like the boats. We, we all get it. Okay. Now, the trouble is, if the metaphor gets big enough, we're living inside it. Mm. For example, in the 30s, um, in this country, the metaphor was the New Deal. People started to live it, and we kind of know what happened. In another country, the metaphor was the Third Reich or the mm. Thousand-Year Reich. People started to live it. That is, each country created reality. And by reality, I mean the stuff you're inside, not little ideas. And people, <laughs> we know what happened. So be really careful of your metaphors, because when you start living them out, you create reality. That's, that's the way we do it. The trouble is we, we can't see metaphor like I suppose fish can't see, I don't know, do fish see water? <laughs> do birds see air? I don't know. Metaphors are like that. So, yeah, it reminds me of, you know, people talk about whether, you know, it's the resurrection or something else that it has to literally happen. And I think to myself, actually, it seems like metaphor is even more powerful than if something literally happened, because what changed you more, a biology high school textbook or a poem or a song? There's something really powerful about metaphor and how it act, that's the thing that actually transforms our lives, not whether something factually is true or not. I mean, it, and it's terrible. We have to be deadly careful of our metaphors. Honestly, it sounds like, you know, Shakespeare, the dawn in russet mantle clad walks o'er the dew of yon high eastern hill. Quite, why couldn't he just say sun's up? <laughs> you know, that's what it means. <laughs> You just uh, you're imagining Elizabeth, Elizabethan gentleman in a gorgeous robe walking up. Couldn't he just say "sun's up"? Okay, fine. So that's sort of the icing on the cake. But the cake is metaphor itself. Mm-hmm. These are just warnings to be careful about metaphor. So yes, you're quite right. You live out your metaphor for better or for worse, and that some zone, some metaphors don't work. Anyway, so c- come back to what you were talking about in the ancient world. Let us say somebody has died and he's a great saint in your understanding, or he's a great hero. He might be a mighty general for the Romans. He might be a great saint for the Jews. How do you get past where he died? We buried him. Mm. How, how do you acclaim him? How, especially if he was executed or killed in battle, how would you vindicate him? How would you exalt him? I'm, I'm using neutral language. How would you exalt him? They had two ways. Two different ways. One is called ascension. The, the Greek is apotheosis. It, for example, it was told of Romulus, the founder of Rome, of Moses, the founder of, let's say, Judaism. They both had ascended to God or the gods. Now, we might say, oh, come on, that really doesn't happen. But that was their way of saying, this guy is really big and important. Mm-hmm. And it is. It's not just he died and off he went. He's up there with the gods. So we are protected. If we're Romans, we are protected. So it was a a magnificent idea of how to exalt somebody that were not just God. It's called ascension. That was, I would say, the common parlance of the ancient world. Romans knew ascensions happened. Uh, Greeks knew it. Jews knew it. They might argue whether your guy or our guy did. They might say your guy didn't. 
but they never could say it couldn't be done. They took it for granted. The same way as we might take it for granted that somebody could get the Nobel Prize. They could. Maybe your guy deserves it, our guy, but nobody could say it could, and nobody could say our guy was unique. Our guy ascended to the gods. Mm. No. <laughs> it, was, it was said of Christ. It was said of, of Caesar Augustus. It was a competing thing. Now, that's essential. Okay? It can happen to anyone if their culture and everyone accepts it. Here's another word. A weird word. Resurrection. In, in Greek, it's anastasis. What's weird about it? Nobody else ever used the word except Pharisaic Judaism. Not all Jews use it. It was a very special idea that the Pharisees had. And what, what was the payoff? The Pharisees claimed that there would be, let's do it this way, that there would be at the end of time a great cosmic justice, a great cosmic judgment for the whole human race. Everyone would rise. Say, what? They said everyone would rise wherever they were. Say, what about cannibals? How would that work out? <laughs> but everyone would rise to be a great judgment, and then there would be sanctions, heaven or hell. Wow. Now, you might not believe that. I certainly wouldn't if you're talking about the end of time. But the idea that there is a cosmic judgment on us. Not just that individuals take off into heaven an eternal memory, but the whole human race is under judgment for what it does. Now, I can't not see that outside the Bible in what's called human evolution. Who do you think is responsible for the environment mess we're in today? Mm. I didn't do anything. You know, you didn't do anything. Even if we dropped our little bottle where we shouldn't have done our water bottle where we shouldn't have done it. So when I read a text from the ancient world 2,000 years ago, and it tells me there's a great cosmic judge, judgment at the end of time, which touches the responsibility of the whole human race, I don't know how to not take it literally. Mm. Take it literally, I just laugh at it. It's kind of stupid, the whole human race and judgment. You know, it's funny. Ridiculous. But it, that there is a cosmic judgment. I think I can't not look at that from the point of view of evolution. What are we doing to the environment and have been doing it since the dawn of time, since came out of Africa 50,000 years ago and started immediately a war on the environment, other species. So biodiversity is, is a danger. And we've been warring with ourselves always since we were... <laughs> first started and even our ancestors up in the trees. So there is a cost accounting for our humanity's war on the world. And I can hear that coming from these ancient texts. If I take them literally, as I said, they're kind of ridiculous. But I don't know, how were they glimpsing something? How were they able to glimpse that our species the human race, has a cost accounting in the future, they said, at the mm. end of time. I, I don't see it. I see the cost accounting coming due already and was coming due already. So I'm looking always at the Bible 
and at human evolution. And if somebody says to me, well, I couldn't care less about the Bible, God, Paul, or I would say, fine, 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 fine. I'm just talking about people who 2000 years ago glimpsed something, sort of threw it last darkly. But I think what they glimpsed, we have to take very, very seriously. And it has nothing to do, you might say, with religion. It has everything to do with evolution. So thinking of resurrection in that way, so what you're saying, and I think a lot of Christians would like, wait, what in the world? What you're saying is that this understanding that Jesus's body was literally or bodily resurrected is sort of a foreign concept to what a lot of these early followers of Jesus, whether they were uh, Jewish or whether they were Gentile, either one of them would not have understood the resurrection in that way. They would have understood resurrection very differently or ascension very differently. Uh, Is that what I'm kind of getting? Is that like the early Christians would not have understood it this way at all? Yes. Yes. That's what I'm really saying. And you can talk resurrection. You can use the word, of course, but really think ascension. And that's the difference. This is where it comes down. For example, if you think the story of what we call the transfiguration, that's in Mark 9, when Jesus goes up to the mountain, he's transfigured. The clue is the two people who greet him there are Elijah and Moses. Those are the law and the prophets. Each of them had ascended to God. They're, the third one's coming up, as it were. They're, they're the greeting, the, the meet and greet of heaven, greeting Jesus. So the question is raised whether the earliest, the earliest and most obvious interpretation metaphorical interpretation of what happened to Jesus is ascension mm. because it's, it's not just Roman, it's cross-cultural. As I said, a Roman and a Jew talking to one another, each had to admit that ascensions happened. They couldn't deny it. Now, it, it's perfectly possible for a Christian to say, well, I don't believe it of Augustus and the Roman to say, I don't believe the Christ. Fine. That's an argument. But that's, different from saying it can't happen. So yes, mm-hmm. the huge, I think, unstudied question has to be about these two ones. And why, for example, and what are the implications? Because ascension basically is about me and you being heroic. This is the superheroism <laughs> that's, <laughs> that is so pro- profound in our Western tradition. Individuals. Heroic. They're going to save the world as individuals, all by themselves. Mm-hmm. Superheroes. Superheroes who never die. Or super leaders who never lose. <laughs> it's the same Western mythology. Now, if you go, for example, over to Eastern Christianity, Western Christianity is one vision of Easter. This is now where the facts come in before the interpretations. Western Christianity has Jesus coming out of the tomb. You can see the pictures. He's either stepping out, sort of one leg out and one leg in, or he's above it, kind of ascending. It's always about what I call individual resurrection. Mm -hmm. The soldiers are there. Now, if you go over to Eastern Christianity, and this this literally happened to me almost like an epiphany in 2002. I saw it. I was in Cappadocia in Goremi the first time I saw it. You have Jesus taking Adam and Eve out. Now, what on earth is that? Jesus is not coming out, mind his own business, as it were. 
he's taken Adam and Eve with him. Now, whatever you think about it, Adam and Eve represent the human race in the biblical tradition. It doesn't make any difference whether you accept the, the story of that. When you see Adam and Eve, we're talking the human race in the same way you and I see two yellow arches, we're talking McDonald's. We, we understand the symbol. So <laughs> it doesn't make any difference whether you like it or not. That's the symbol. So he's taken Adam and Eve. Now, you got a metaphor of Jesus coming out all alone, magnificent, resplendent, triumphant. But alone. That's one metaphor. Here's another metaphor. Eastern Christianity, a universal resurrection. He's taking the human race out with him. Now, what does that mean? I mean, before we say I believe or I accept or I reject, what's the message you're getting? I have to know the message before I can say I don't believe it. Mm. You know, if you talk to me in, in Russian, I, all I can say is I don't know. So the huge intuition that's behind this, let me put it even, the fact that's behind this, is that in the New Testament, every basic event, say, in the life of Jesus is described. The birth, the, the baptism, it's all there. So if you were an artist, it doesn't make any difference whether you believe in any of this stuff. Let's say you're the artist and somebody says, I'd like a picture, an image of the resurrection. All right. It's a big commission. You. Let's say you're a happy atheist. You couldn't be. What's the resurrection? How do I draw it? I can see how to draw the crucifixion. It's described in the New Testament, in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Nobody describes the actual resurrection. Mm. Yeah, there's these visions. That's true. The, the women have visions. The men have visions. There's the empty tomb, the story. But their results, their consequences, their effects. Call them proofs if you want. But this guy, this weird guy, has given me a big commission to draw the resurrection. What would I have seen if I was right there at the moment it happened? I'm flummoxed. I don't know how to do it. This was the problem that came up in the West and in the East because there was no description in their texts of that actual moment. Mm. So they could get away with it by maybe showing the women at the tomb. But somebody could say, well, that's not what I want. I asked you for the resurrection. You're showing me results, effects. I want to know the moment. If I was there, if I was there as it were with a camera, <laughs> what would I have seen? And the second thing is that the Western answer to that question and the Eastern answer to that question are profoundly different. Right. And that's not true, I think, to be honest with you, any other event I can think of in the life of Jesus. If you see a Western-style crucifixion and an Eastern-style, the dress might be different or something, but it'll be the same. Almost every other image I can think of looks the same <clears throat> except the resurrection. And that's because there is no actual image of the actual moment itself. A lot of my listeners, a lot of the folks that listen into this podcast are folks that grew up in a kind of Christianity where you had to believe the bodily, literal resurrection, right? And I don't know if you grew up in that type of tradition. I'm sure you've encountered a lot of those folks that have. How did that development start? We've talked a little bit about how that's not how early Christians have understood it. And certainly the East understands the resurrection very differently than the West. Yes. Then yes. how did we get to a point where 
the resurrection had to be understood as a bodily, literal resurrection, or you weren't a Christian. How did where where in the development of Christian history did that happen, and why did that happen? I'm sure there's got to be either maybe political or theological reasons why that was developed. But anyway, I'm curious. And you know, my experience. See, I grew up in Ireland. I as I said, I was 17 when I left, so my experience was totally different. When I came to this country, when I was working here with the Jesus Seminar in, in the in the 90s. I really appreciated for the first time fundamentalism. I never had for I, I don't want to make this sound like I was smarter or anything. I wasn't. It just wasn't there. The wallpaper of Ireland, I grew up in the Republic, the wallpaper of Ireland was Roman Catholicism. You took it for granted like you take your door or your house. It was just there. Nobody battered us over the head with now. I was going to say nobody battered us over the head with the literal Bible. Well, there was no Bible. Growing up, the big book, I was an altar boy when I was eight years of age, and the big book you carried was not the Bible, and it was a big book, by the way. It's called the Roman Missal, M-I-S-S-A-L. The, the other word would work too. This is the way the Roman Catholic tradition takes what it wants out of the Bible, it's filled with Psalms, quotations from Jesus, letters from Paul. It's all the Bible, but it's put in their book in their form. That means it's their book. So I grew up with that, and nobody really said to me, now, you must take this literally. So coming over to this country, you know, I, I studied the, in the seminary and everything else. I really didn't understand fundamentalism. And Can I use two different words? Literalism is when somebody reads a text in the Bible and takes it literally. But a fundamentalist for me is a literalist who says, and if you don't take it, that way, you are not a Christian. Mm. Now, I, I'm not, I can talk with literalists because most of us, <laughs> we, growing up as kids, we were all literalists. Everything you were told, you that, that's the way it was. And you have to learn you know, that what's literal and what's metaphorical. But a fundamentalist is a dangerous vision because basically they're telling you, if you don't take it this way, you're either a traitor or an apostate. And the danger of fundamentalism is if we get power, please don't take it personally, but we might burn you at the stake. Mm. <laughs> don't take it personally. We, we had, you're just evil and we're getting rid of you. So I had to learn fundamentalism when I came here. And I think it happened in this country, especially at other places as well. Of course, it's, it's, it's something we tend to do when we're threatened. We go back to the tried and true and don't change a thing. Don't change anything. You know. Keep your BlackBerry, that'll save the future. No, no, it won't. Um, so it's, it's almost a natural impulse since change is inevitable. <laughs> we want to say, well, let's, let's, let's resist it because we might lose something. But if you don't change, you definitely lose something. So there was a great big bulwark put up against it. We won't change anything. We will take everything literally. The, the world was created 6,000 years ago, let us say, Adam and Eve. If you were there, you could have said, good morning, Adam. Hi, Eve. If, well, after you got bored, I suppose. It, it's taken literally. Now, sometimes when you take something literally, you, you could get profound meaning from it. But I'd, I'd have to hear if somebody says, okay, I take it literally. I would say, well, what does it mean for you? 
uh, and then I say, well, I take it metaphorically, here's what it means for me. We, we might find, for example, we agreed on how to act. Because I've had people who are quite literal about the resurrection, which I take metaphorical, but we would agree on what it might mean for our environment or for our world, here and now. So literal is one thing. Fundamental is something else, because basically I'm telling you that you're wrong or you're evil. And if I had the power to do something about it, I would erase you mm. one way or another. I take away your job, I take away your livelihood, or I would take away your life. Because fundamentalism always breeds that type of intolerance. Fundamentalism, not literalism. So I had to learn that in this country. It, it wasn't what I grew up in Ireland. Not because we're nicer people. <laughs> That's not it at all. <laughs> it's simply that we, we didn't have the fights that, that were conducted here about the Bible. And it's, it's sort of reaction to modernity. You know, you feel threatened. And if you can't adjust to hold on to your what is precious for you and adjust to the future, then you lash out because you're threatened. So at what point would you say then in like Christian history, did we start seeing that type of way of understanding the resurrection then? So you talked a little, you know, the difference between literalism and fundamentalism. Is there a point where we see maybe it's early Christianity, maybe it comes later. When do we start seeing theologians talking about the resurrection in this like literal way, whether they are fundamentalists about it, I don't know. But when did we start seeing that? Because again, like it doesn't seem like we're seeing this very early on right away with uh, early Christians. It must have come at some point later where we start seeing that development of understanding the resurrection in that way. I mean, the seeds are very early, very, very mm. early. Because you, I see where you could see it actually in the New Testament itself is where Luke, the author of the gospel according to Luke, he's known as Luke, says that when Jesus comes out, he's able to eat some fish. Now, Paul, for example, who's earlier than Luke, would be rolling over in his grave screaming if he heard that. Because he says, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God when he's talking about the resurrection. Whatever type of body Jesus has, it ain't the normal body. Let me back up a second. The whole ancient world took it for granted that dead people had some sort of body. Otherwise, how could they appear to you and be recognized? If you were reading Virgil, for example, forget about Christianity. Hector, who had been killed by Achilles for the walls of Troy, appears to Aeneas and tells him, get out of Troy, go off to Italy and found the Roman race. Now, how did he recognize Hector? Because he was streamed with blood and everything else, like Homer had described. So everyone in the ancient world presumed if you had a vision or went down to Hades, you'd somehow recognize the person. Now, if you say, what kind of body is it? You know, could they have fish and chips with you? They would probably say, oh, come on, get a life. But there's nothing extraordinary for somebody saying Jesus had a body. Of course he had a body. Was it really a literal body like you and I have so we could do everything the same? You could scratch your cheek, you could, you could, we won't get into details, but you could do everything normal. I think Luke does. So already in Luke, I see the germ. He's talking resurrection, but he ain't describing what anyone, for example, Paul, 
would have understood by that term because remember paul's a pharisee of course mm. he may it's maybe paul more than anyone else who brings this whole idea in rather than ascension so the question is when is early christianity talking resurrection but thinking meaning ascension because say mm. a Greek verb like agairo to rise that's the same word you use for getting up in the morning rise up are, you, are getting up after dinner you rise up from the table are we talking ascension or resurrection that becomes a huge problem in the new testament itself and where do you see paul kind of going with that you know again paul's coming from that pharisaic right. uh understanding because clearly there's a d- difference of understandings about this and paul oh, yeah. is one particular understanding uh you know he he doesn't like have a, a monolith on all these understandings of uh, understanding resurrection so where where do you see paul fit into how he's understanding resurrection i'm guessing it's probably from this pharisaic vision that he has yeah, really and so he has a huge problem i i think this is the way paul could pivot from being a persecutor to being an apostle to be like totally against as a persecutor, not just pivot to being, well, mind your own business, Paul, or but an apostle. I think the pivot is for him resurrection because his great intuition was, well, as a Pharisee, let me play Paul for a second. As a Pharisee, I believe this was going to happen at the end of time. But what if it happened already with Jesus and instead of being a sort of an end time product, it was an in-time process. Mm. Well, well, Paul, why would it have begun with Jesus? Because Jesus had spent his life in nonviolent resistance to Rome and the crucified him. So that the justification of the world for Paul began with Jesus. That's why the crucifixion is so important for Paul. And that's why actually every image you see of Jesus resurrecting either has the cross, the halo, you know, the cross and the halo, or he's carrying a cross. So you're never allowed to separate crucifixion from resurrection in the art, whether it's in the West or the East. So what, what Paul is saying, and this is his great contribution, the resurrection has already begun. I want to scream, wait, 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 wait a minute. If that's right, then you're telling me, Paul, the universal resurrection has already begun so the general judgment has begun so heaven and hell are open for business and all again and here i go again i hear the voice of evolution behind paul Mm. but that's just what we're saying yeah heaven and hell are open for business and if you want to watch the (laughs) the evening news for the last hundred years you get a pretty good idea what heaven and hell looks like when they're open for business. It sounds like then, based on the different understandings from the Western tradition versus the Eastern tradition, it just sounds like maybe the Eastern tradition has Paul a little bit better than, uh, you know, they got Paul uh, and they got Paul right. And it seems like the Western tradition actually diverted a little bit from Paul in the understanding of resurrection, given the fact that Paul is the what you describe as the end time process of resurrection and uh, and therefore were included in that resurrection. So it's that more universal understanding that the Eastern tradition has. I think you're absolutely right. That's one of my conclusions. I kind of 
imagine it this way, you know, if the first Corinthians, after listening to Paul in chapter 15, what we call it, said to him, okay, Paul, we know what a crucifixion is like. We've seen that. We do. Show us a picture, Paul. Draw us a picture of the resurrection. You're talking about it all the time. It's always the resurrection, the resurrection. Draw us the moment. Let's imagine. Paul drew sort of the Western tradition, Jesus stepping out of the tomb or standing above the tomb or, you know, hovering above the tumors. We'd recognize that, the soldiers. And then you have this other one with Adam and Eve coming out. Paul would have gone to the east without a doubt. Mm. He said, that's what I'm talking about. We're talking about the whole world and the universe, without a doubt. Look over at the other one and he might, I don't know what he'd say about that. So I think there's far greater continuity and conformity. And I'm not surprised, of course, because Paul is East. <laughs> we're, talking right. about, we're talking about the East, anything sort of East of... <laughs> East of the Adriatic. That's what we're talking about. So I'm not surprised to come to that conclusion, really. But I think it's true. And I even push it. Paul may have invented, Paul may have been the one who really brought in resurrection in that sense into the whole early Christian tradition. It's possible. This episode of A People's Theology is brought to you by United Theological Seminary of the Twin Cities. Are you considering exploring your faith more deeply? Or are you called to ministry, but haven't found a seminary that is quite right for you? When you come to United, you join a community that is intentionally open, socially aware, and theologically adventurous. United's passion is equipping leaders to make real, lasting change in the world through their many different degree programs. Whether your vocation is in faith leadership, nonprofit leadership, academia, the arts, activism, or social entrepreneurship. And the best news is you don't have to uproot your life to attend seminary. United offers maximum flexibility to fit your schedule. Attend on campus or online, part-time or full-time. Their leading distance learning technology allows students to be active in the classroom and engaged with the United community. Want to learn more? Visit unitedseminary.edu forward slash a people's theology or click the link in the episode description and receive a $1,000 scholarship when you apply and are admitted. United Theological Seminary of the Twin Cities, training leaders to dismantle systems of oppression, care for the spiritual needs of a multi-faith world, and push the boundaries of theology. So we've talked a little bit then, you know, about Paul probably being more aligned with that Eastern tradition, that universal resurrection versus the individualized resurrection of the West. I don't want to like give all the time to like basically be like, yeah, the Eastern tradition got it all right. There must be some sort of what, what from at least from your conclusions, the, the West has got something to say that there is something to contribute to their understanding of the resurrection. Because at the, at the end of your lectures, you, t- you talk about, you know, reconciling both of these traditions with one another. So what does the West at least have to offer the the. what what you think the West has to offer and contribute to the understanding of resurrection based on your kind of conclusions around it. And part of that was influenced by images I saw, which had tried to combine them. Mm. And that made me think, I mean, actually I I show images where you have like, (laughs) could you imagine an upstairs, downstairs resurrection downstairs? Jesus is taking Adam and Eve out of, out of Hades. It's not out of hell, but it's out of Hades. And upstairs, it's almost like you go right up and Jesus is coming out. So, I mean, I thought that was, let me put it this way. If I had to choose East or West, if I had to choose, 
I'm going east. But I do think the combination is more powerful because in the Western tradition, Jesus comes out of the tomb. What? To tell people to go do it, as it were. Mm. You might look at the Eastern tradition and figure, well, it's all done for me. I mm. I'm out of here. The human race, that's, that includes me. So thank you very much, Jesus. I appreciate that. But, you know, you, you brought life out of death and trampled down poor old Hades, who's just death. No, in, in the West, it starts, he, he comes up and he talks. <laughs> he just doesn't hover off, as it were. So I find the reconciliation is, especially those images, which try to bring the two of them together. And they did because, you know, in the first thousand years of Christianity, there kind of was no East and West. There was actually, but, you know, if you said was Constantine in the fourth century was East or West, he wouldn't know the difference. He said, I'm, I'm running the whole place. What do you mean East or West? I'm in charge. I just have a, you know, a new capital of Constantinople, but I'm in charge of the whole European area. So he would have said East, West, who cares? It's in the second millennium after the year 1000 in round numbers that the west goes west and the east goes east and they don't talk to one another mm. that's what it happens so the the interface before that became absolute it's very interesting because western churches very often have an eastern image and then eastern churches kind of want to put two images maybe side by side so as you're looking at the life of Jesus on the walls, say, of a church in Trudus Mountains of Cyprus, first thing you see is the, is the west, is the eastern, sorry, the eastern, the, the crucifixion, then the eastern, then the western. Because the influence, say, of the Venetians in the 15th century is coming in. So the idea of trying to reconcile them has been there. It's in, it's in the iconography, at least. And that's why I made so much of it in the whole lecture at the end, because the two together, I think, are a more powerful mega metaphor, mega metaphor, than either of the metaphors all by themselves. Yeah, it seems like if you really wanted to sum up each of these traditions in two words each, it seems like the Eastern tradition is saying this is what we're resurrected from. And we're all resurrected then, right? It's a universal resurrection. Whereas the West, kind of what you're saying here, because Jesus goes out and talks and is like, hey, that is more of a resurrection to something. And so when you combine them both, we can have faith that we're resurrected from death, violence, whatever you want to say. We're resurrected from that. And we're also resurrected to do something. And again, that's kind of maybe where... The, this the in time process that you were talking about earlier with Paul's understanding of resurrection that we're actually resurrected to do something in the world uh, and I, I'm curious you know I, I know you have this anti imperial impulse in all of this to do good work in the world that we are not to continue the the world of empire can you talk a little bit about then that connection of what I think is sort of a resurrection to do something which I would imagine is probably something anti imperial. <laughs> Yeah, and I'd even push that farther. No, but thank you for putting it that way. Because it, it's like the model, you know, we're fr we talk about freedom. Okay, it's freedom from tyranny and all the rest, but it's also freedom for. Right. People. We got the same thing in politics. Now, 
yeah, let me put it this way. It would be a terrible mistake to, to think that Paul was not against the Roman Empire. He was. And from the book of Daniel onwards for 150 years, the Jewish people knew all about empires. <laughs> they, they'd watch every dreary one put their boot on their neck. They lived on the Levantine coast on, on the high road of empire. The superpowers of Mesopotamia and Egypt would come <laughs> through them. East, West, they came, they knew all about empires. But they never really thought that empire was the basic thing that was wrong. They had a sense there's something wrong with the world. Mm. So it's not like, well, if you got rid of the Roman Empire, everything would be fine. So on the one hand, I want to insist, yes, the, the Roman Empire crucified Jesus. And it wasn't just because they made a mistake. They knew he was, he was a subversive. That's correct. He was not violent. I don't think that's true. That's why they just crucified him, but didn't round up his followers. But he was. But we were called an activist. And the Romans crucified activists. So that's one part of it. But what was wrong with the Roman Empire was the structure of the world almost. That we've, we've, had, we've had violence from the very beginning, before we came down from the trees probably. But violence has escalated. I mean, the worst day of Roman slaughter, they didn't endanger the environment of the Mediterranean. You know, you take your sword to an olive tree, the sword will lose. <laughs> but we, we can destroy We can destroy the world. We can destroy it, what, atomically, biologically, chemically, demographically, <laughs> ecologically. And we're only up to E in our alphabet of destruction. We're experts. That makes us the most endangered and endangered species on the on the earth. So I want to say behind empire and its violence is the specter of human violence against the environment. The Bible doesn't see that. And the Bible's dream is could we beat the swords into plowshares and the spears into pruning hook and have no more war. It never glimpsed the horror that we see today, that maybe the pruning hooks and the plows could be the problem. That the danger, the danger to the environment is separate from the danger for warfare. That even if we had the most peaceful world you could imagine, everyone loved one another and, you know, it was the perfect world, we could destroy the environment. So there's, there's layers behind this that the Bible doesn't glimpse. Hmm. It glimpses it clearly from warfare. It does know warfare and know the danger. And it matches a peaceful world. We, we're trying to imagine a sustainable world. That's much trickier. And we haven't even established a peaceful world. So you can see right, right now in the evening news, it looks like we're almost back to the first world war or a second world war model in Eastern Europe. And all of a sudden, we're still not solving the climate crisis. So mm -hmm. I, I, I don't want to make it sound like, oh, it's fine. Jesus was against the Roman Empire. Hey, the Roman Empire is gone. So <laughs> what do we need him for? Right. What hope then would you say that the resurrection offers to a world where we've got a climate crisis, we've got wars, yeah. and so there's a lack of sustainability. There's clearly a lack of peace. What kind of hope does the resurrection offer that kind of world? 
well, at least it gives us a vision, honestly. Mm. And without a vision, <laughs> I think it's in Proverbs somewhere, without a vision, the people perish. I think it's in the King James Bible edition. Without a vision, the people perish. Well, yeah, but, but the wrong vision, they perish even faster, to be honest with you. But I think you have to have a vision first. Mm. Then, what, what would you say that vision is, that resurrection vision is? The, is it that cosmic justice, that in, in time, cosmic justice, yeah. ju- judgment? Is that what you're saying? That's the way I see it, because the term resurrection was a package deal. It involved the universal resurrection, the general judgment, and hell, heaven and hell. That was a package deal. Nobody said, well, you're all going to rise up and just dance. <laughs> you know, you're rising up for judgment. Mm. And, you know, that was a judgment of the human race. You could have imagined if you're making up metaphors, couldn't we all just be judged as soon as we die? And off you go to heaven and hell and it would save this whole big, why would they have to have this big universal scenario at the end of time? Because it's the human race that's responsible. Oh, cool. That means all of us. Of course, we're in there. But you could, you could have skipped this whole weird idea of a universal. But their vision was there had to be a cosmic responsibility, we might say. Mm. I think that is, I honestly, based on, I can't not see it now in the Bible, though I don't know if I'm seeing it from evolution. I, I don't know. It's like two vectors I have, the, the biblical vector and evolutionary vectors. And they kind of cross, and I don't know which is the more influential in my own imagination. Mm. But the hope is that they've already seen it. And so at least our religious tradition in the West, that's our tradition, other other religions speak for themselves, by the way. I'm making no claims that Christianity is it or anything else. All I want to say is I at least see things there that they're glimpsing. It's almost like they were having intuitions of evolution. I mean, none of them knew anything like, like we know, of course. We didn't know about evolution, cosmic evolution, until the last century. So, but they, I think they had intuitions of responsibility about the world. I think that's terribly hopeful. It, it means it, it means that we're not a sort of a doomed species that we're we're bound to violence. It's it's part of our nature. We can't do anything about it, and so therefore we are simply doomed for extinction because we can't change. Which, which it might be, if we cannot change, then we would be doomed. Mm. But we can imagine, and we are imagining, even if we can't do it, what a sustainable civilization would be. So I, I find that terribly hopeful. So from all of this, I don't come to the conclusion it's hopeless. Mm. I do want us to think of something. The world is the Titanic. But we are the iceberg. Our problem is not that we're on the Titanic. The problem is we're the iceberg. Mm. That's where we have to say, okay, now that's that's serious stuff. <laughs> mm. It it reminds me of actually a fellow Irishman, uh, Peter Rollins, has said something along the lines of, "You don't deny the resurrection by believing whether it happened literally or not." That's not denying the resurrection or affirming the resurrection. Denying and affirming the resurrection is when you throw that plastic bottle out into the natural world. That's when you deny the resurrection. 
And it, it's it to me that reminds me of the kind of the the cosmic vision that you're you're laying out that the, the to understand the resurrection this way is to uh, give hope to those who are marginalized to provide uh, or, or to to do what you can to liberate the, the oppressed. That is the af- affirmation of the resurrection and to do the opposite of that is to deny the resurrection. And that's, I think, a better way to understanding that, uh, that piece of resurrection, uh, and, and whether you're affirming it or denying it. Um, because I just get so tired of that, like whole debate about whether you believe the bodily resurrection or not. It's a very annoying debate when you think about how powerful and transformative the resurrection really can be. If we understand it again, in the way that I think you're describing that the Eastern tradition has described the way that Paul has understood it as a Pharisee, um, and what again, what you're kind of concluding about the resurrection. That to me is a much more interesting way to think about the resurrection, and that's the way that I think is going to actually transform people and give them hope in the world. Yeah, and watch, watch how clever we are, though. Let's have all the argument about whether the tomb was empty or not. I mean, I don't think it's just accident how how good we are at the wrong discussion. Mm. <laughs> let you and I spend an hour debating whether the empty tomb was found, whether the women found it, whether it was Mary. And what we're doing very cleverly is avoiding the main issue, which you just mentioned. The main issue, and it does have to do with bodies, because when you talk about that homeless person, you're talking about a body. <laughs> you're not just talking about a soul or something. So we are very clever in a way of raising distraction. distraction. So you're quite right. Those are the questions. You can, you can tie that immediately to Jesus trampling down poor old Hades. Hades, you know, Hades is just doing his job. He's just running Hades, which is the death house. It's not, it's not hell. It's not a place of punishment. It's where everyone goes. So Jesus liberates everyone out of the death house. So he's life out of death is what you're talking about. Yeah, those are examples of it. But you can mm. tie that closely, closely to the Eastern one, because that's, that's the accountability. And if you mm. put the two of them together, as we said, what's the message Jesus comes out of the tomb to deliver? If, if it's anything more than I'm out of here, <laughs> what, what is the message? It's, it's the message to go do it. Yeah. And you'll do greater things than me too. I feel like we sometimes forget about that. Jesus has said that we will actually even do greater things than he will. Uh, and that's one of the things that he leaves us with. That's the power of communities. It's always greater than the power of one. Right. Absolutely. So, uh, Dom, the tagline of my podcast is exploring, inspiring, and liberating theologies. So how do you hope this this lecture series and this work that you've done about the resurrection, how do you hope that that all inspires and liberates people that engage with it? I mean, I start basically. I I hope they will watch it. I've tried to make it as visual as possible, not just talk. Mm -hmm. I've tried to show them the stuff because it's there. I, you can show the iconography of the West. You can show the iconography of the East. It's there. Yeah, the art is amazing, by the way. And I know you kept saying it over in the lectures, but like there was a person that was working with you to like try to get all the picture, like take pictures of all these pieces of art. And they went through a lot of work to do it. And I'm very appreciative of it because the art is incredible. Sarah, my wife, we we spent about 20 trips to the, to the Middle East, anywhere, well, it, it, the West goes all the way. 
I w- I'm going to say from Spain to Syria. We got into Syria the last year. You could do so without a flak jacket and a helmet. 2010. So we got huge amounts, and then we. Mm. The other things we also got were uh, manuscripts. You, you you can't go in with a camera. You can do that in churches, but you could. So in Vatican or Mardias, we had to get them from them. But the art is is to to show the universality of this. Mm. Otherwise, you say, well, that's just one weird church, and they did it that way. So we did it after we weren't seeing anything new anymore, about 20, 20 years work. I'm very grateful to Sarah, because a lot of these images are way up in church and the churches are dark and you have to get permission or you have to bribe your way in at 10 euros a pop or, you know, <laughs> to take pictures in any case. So yes, but the argument is in the images. It really is. Here's mm-hmm. what the West looks like and here's the history. You can follow the whole history of how it got there. Here's the East and it has its own history. So you can see it. Now, somebody says at the end of it, well, I don't agree with you. Fine, fine. I will simply ask you, what do you think this means to you? And what do you think that means to you? Now, don't just look at one of them. <laughs> look at both of them. Because the game we played in the West, and this is from theologians and even biblical experts, is to talk about that image from the West as if it was the only one there. Mm. That's not that's not even factual. At least the other one is there. And they've been there for over a thousand years. So at least you'll have to say, what do you think it means to you? You can say, I reject it, fine. But you can't reject what you don't understand, kind of. You say, okay, mm-hmm. I, think, I think this is claiming that, and I don't. So I would say it's a liberating experience. It was for me, honestly, just to see this duality. Mm. It really was. And to be able to see that maybe the two of them together were more powerful than either alone. So mm. your your final word of libera- liberating, that's what it was for me. Mm. It was enthralling too, because when I started seeing them, this was 2002, I think I saw the first ones that really struck me. It was in Cappadocia, in a, in a Goremi in Cappadocia, where you go inside the tufa, the lava, and there's a monastery built inside the rock totally inside the tufa. And I could see all the images I recognized until I came to the crucifixion. And right next to it was this weird image of Jesus taking Adam and Eve by the hand out of Hades. Even standing on top of poor old Hades. (laughs) So, you know, I I had 40 people with us. It was the Boar Crossing a pilgrimage in the search of Paul. That's where we were going. We were going to, down to Tarsus for Paul. We just stopped there. People, what's that? Little people were asking, where's the resurrection? But then you could see the Greek was written on it, hey, Anastasis, so it says the resurrection. That's the one. And it even says Adam and Eve, their names are written on there in Greek that you could see. So, you know, why are they doing that? Now, that started it for me. Mm. But then, you know, we saw it more and more as we traveled through Turkey. We were really studying Paul. That's what we were there for. But every time we went to a church, we saw this different. So it started in 2002 as a kind of a revelation to me. Wow. My ignorance, I admit, I should have known it maybe. But I kind of knew the Western tradition. It is a really liberating moment when you realize, and it doesn't even have to be about the resurrection, it can be about anything, but it's always yeah. a liberating moment when you realize that's not the only way. 
So, you know, whether it's that's not the only way to understand the resurrection or that's not the only way to think about Christianity or whatever it might be. Those always yeah. seem to be really liberating moments. So it's really cool to see someone like yourself, a incredibly influential scholar, to have those moments even later on in your career. That's really, really cool. Uh, and uh, as much as I've had a lot of those liberating moments over the last like 10 years of my life where my faith has completely changed, it's really cool to think that, you know, even 50 years from now, I still might be having some of those moments like you have where you're like, wait, I had no idea that that has been a part of this Christian tradition and that's going to change my whole life too. I just think that's really cool to think that that all, all of those moments are not behind me. I still have a lot to look forward to. Yes, it was fantastic. It really was fantastic. Love that. Uh, Dom, how can listeners get connected to you and your work? I know you've got a million books out there, but yeah, how can people get connected to uh, the work? Maybe how can people get connected to the Easter Story series? Uh, Yeah, how how can people get connected to you and your work? Basically, when Sarah and I were finished with all of this, we did a book called Resurrecting Easter, How the West Lost and the East Kept the Original Easter Vision, something like that. Mm. Now, it was a four-color book, so it was terribly expensive, and it's been pretty much... (laughs) remainder i think (laughs) the publisher couldn't keep it up so there there is however a um ebook out there you know electronic one get it i would i would advise people get it on kindle buy the kindle book but don't look at it on your kindle because it's black and white if you get it on kindle you can project it onto a screen and have it as big as you want and you can blow the images up to any size you want so one thing you could do if you're interested in this would be a Kindle edition of it. The second thing is, and I really would stress this, go to a trip. I think it's www.easterwithcrossing.com. Go to trip follower at least. The four series, you can register. The four series are up there. We did all four lectures, our lecture for Easter. So you could look at it ahead of time. And then we're doing... Uh, we just did on March the 7th, we did a two-hour Q&A, just Q&A, and we're going to do four more. So I would even say the best way, honestly, is to go to the, the lectures on TripFold. They're classes. They're totally visual. That is, they're image talk, image talk. They're not talk, but a few pictures. Mm-hmm. Go straightly to their visual lectures. I think better than any book, to be honest with you, because to be able to show these on full screen, in the book, it's very expensive. These, this is the sort of thing that Zoom and Restream and all the other platforms were made for. Right. It really is. I mean, this is the way to do it. And I don't know what's part of the future, but I'd be perfectly happy with it because it's visual. Love that. Love that. Well, I have definitely appreciated the series. I think it's just incredible. It has completely changed the way that I think about the resurrection. You know, I had a lot of inklings for a while to think about the resurrection differently. Uh, But having someone like yourself, who's an expert on all of this, uh, has really just helped kind of confirm some of the the ideas that I've had around that resurrection for a while. Uh, And also provides a lot of the historical kind of backup that I need uh, when I think about uh, the, the, the necessary history that is needed when you think through different ideas about the resurrection. So I'm really appreciative that you've done all this work around the history, you've done all the artwork pieces, and you've made it really accessible for a lot of people. So I'm just really, really grateful for you. And uh, even beyond that, just your work in general has been so influential in my life and a lot of other people's lives. Uh, and so again, it's kind of a dream come true to be able to chat with someone like yourself. So thank you so much for for talking a little bit more about resurrection. Uh, obviously, it's a really hot topic during this Easter time. And so I'm really excited to 
get the episode out during that time uh, and hopefully it gets people thinking. And thank you very, very much for having me, Mason. Have a great day. If you would like to connect with John Dominic Crossan and his work, you can find links in the episode description. Thank you again for listening to another episode of A People's Theology. If you liked what you heard, please give the podcast a five-star rating and review. Also, please support the podcast at my Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Mason Menega. And remember, friends, go and be the theology to the world that inspires and liberates.